You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. 20 years from now, 10 years from now, probably even two years from now, we'll look back on the many lessons we learned during this pandemic, this hopefully once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. Events like these can reveal things to us that we don't see in normal times. There's one lesson in particular that has already been made crystal clear, and that is that we are not in control. It has been at times frustrating, humorous, sad, and confusing to watch those in leadership face a virus that doesn't listen to policies, to regulations, to quarantines, to best practices, or eloquent speeches. We've seen politicians at every level, from the local authorities to the presidency, who are accustomed to being able to get things done, all of a sudden find themselves having no power to stop this virus. It doesn't care about border security. It doesn't care about our military power. It doesn't care about our technological advancements or business prowess. If 2020 has taught us anything, it's that we're not as in control as we think we are. If I was not a Christian, I would feel pretty unsettled right now. I'd have a hard time not letting the the claws of worry and anxiety begin to sink into me. However, worry, fear, anxiety have nothing to grab a hold of in my heart and mind because I serve a God who is 100% in control. In fact, He is sovereign. And I don't mean sovereign in a way a king or a dictator has power in their small realm to make people do things. When I say God is sovereign, I mean that there's not a single atom in the universe that operates outside of his scope of power. There's no creature or being that for a millisecond could escape his authority and reign. There's not a single action, word, or thought that could ever surprise him because they're all subject to his decree. He is sovereign in a way that my mind fails to fully comprehend. And that's a very good thing. That means he is in control and will always be in control. It re-energizes my faith when I dwell on His sovereignty because I know His promises to me can never fail and His purposes in the world can never be defeated. His kingdom marches on until one day He makes all things new. This sovereignty of God will be found clearly in today's passage in John 11. And as we move into John 12, and you can go ahead and turn if you have your Bibles with you to John chapter 11. When I think of John's gospel and where we're at in it right now, it reminds me of putting together a puzzle. Most people start by putting together the outside of the puzzle first. It takes a decent amount of time of flipping all the pieces over and sorting through them to find the ones with the flat sides. But once you have the outside assembled, then the rest of it falls into place much more quickly. In a similar way, the first 11 chapters of John feel a little bit like putting together the outside of the puzzle. We have learned some amazing truths about Christ's identity. We've seen signs that point to his deity. We've heard Jesus reference the will of the Father and foreshadow his death here and there. But now in the second half of the book, the pieces begin to come together much more quickly. And as they do, we see a clearer picture of God's sovereign hand at work as Jesus accomplishes the will of the Father. And that's what I want us to see this morning. God's sovereignty in the story of redemption And we'll see that by looking at a series of events that all point to the cross. 
It's no accident that Jesus ends up on the cross. It's exactly where his life and ministry was meant to lead him. And in today's verses, it'll seem like mile markers or billboards pointing to the cross. It reminds me of the billboards you see on the highway for some of the more famous places. As soon as you get off I-65, you start seeing billboards for Lambert's or Bucky's. But there's not just one. There's dozens. They tell you how much further you need to go till you get there. It's 30 miles, 20 miles, 10 miles, then two miles up on the left. There are markers pointing to what's ahead. And in the same way, this passage, we'll see three markers pointing to the coming cross. So would you begin reading with me in John 11, verse 45. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also together into, the, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So here we have the aftermath of one of Jesus' most incredible miracles. He has brought a dead person back to life simply by commanding him to come out of the grave. In response, many of the Jews who were there believed in him. That's understandable. They just witnessed the glory of God on display. But some of them go back and report to the Pharisees what Jesus had done. And this whips them into a frenzy. They're so alarmed that they call a major meeting. The council, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin, gathered together to figure things out. This included not only the Pharisees, but the chief priests and the high priest. This high priest during the time was a man named Caiaphas. This high priest Caiaphas was basically the most powerful Jewish leader. Of course, Rome was really the one in control of the region, but they allowed the high priest to exercise his authority over the Jewish people. As long as they didn't cause problems, the Roman authorities were comfortable with letting the people that they conquered live their lives. But these Jews have a legitimate concern. In verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If Jesus can raise people from the dead, then who knows what else he's capable of? Who knows what he may do next? More and more people will believe in him. And that's a threat on several levels. It's a threat in one way because more people are looking to Jesus than to the Pharisees for leadership. But it's also a threat to their existence. As we continue into chapter 12, we will see that Jerusalem is a powder keg ready to explode. It's time for the Passover again, so there's hundreds of thousands of Jews traveling from all over the region, and everyone's talking about one man, Jesus. He's the talk of the whole town. All the buzz is about who he is and the miracles he's doing. He's just raised a man to life. And the more people start to believe he is the Messiah, the more dangerous the situation becomes. That's because most people 
thought the Messiah would be a political leader who would overthrow the Roman authorities. And it's also the time of the Passover where they are commemorating God freeing them from slavery to the Egyptians. So how fitting would it be for God to now free them from the Roman rule? The people are primed for change. Jesus very easily could incite a full-blown rebellion and uprising. But do you know what Rome does to rebellions? They squash them. They bring the hammer down on uprisings. That's why they're worried and they say the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're worried that they'll lose their position of power. And not only that, but their whole nation will be destroyed. What's interesting here is that they don't seem to deny that Jesus is doing these miracles. They aren't disputing that he raised someone from the dead. They're just afraid of what they might lose because of it. Jesus is simply a threat to their way of life. And that's when Caiaphas speaks up and says, You don't know what you're talking about. It's better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. But look at what John adds in verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, had prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is the first marker pointing to the cross. So what's going on here? Looking back on it, John is saying that Caiaphas might, have, might not have known it, but what he was saying was actually prophetic. What he said was true, but it was true on two levels. What Caiaphas meant was that they needed to kill Jesus to calm the people down. It's better that one man died than Rome killing the entire Jewish people. Take Jesus out of the picture and there's no longer a leader for this rebellion. That's what he meant by his words. But there was a deeper prophetic meaning in his words than even he knew. It reminds me of what Joseph told his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That can only be true if God is in control, if God is sovereign. Joseph was thrown into a pit by his jealous brothers, then sold into slavery. He worked his way up into an Egyptian household until he is falsely accused of of rape by his master's wife and then thrown into prison for a whole two years. But finally, he's brought out in By interpreting the king's dreams, he's put in charge of all the land. And by that, God uses him to save his family from starving during a famine, and in so doing, preserves the line of Abraham. So Joseph's brothers really did mean evil against him. Potiphar's wife really did mean evil against him. But what Joseph is able to see is that God was also at work the entire time. He was using those events to carry out his will. And he can do that because he's sovereign, completely in control, with complete authority. In a similar way, that's what we see happening right here in John 11. Caiaphas says it's better that one man should die than the whole nation. He's talking about substitution. Someone is going to have to die. Let's substitute this Jesus guy for the Jewish nation. That's Caiaphas' perspective. But now look at it from God's perspective. Jesus will be the substitute, but he'll be the substitute for something much more important. He'll be the substitute for the wrath of God on sinners. He will be our scapegoat. Do you know that the word scapegoat originates in the Bible? In God's law, he established that on the day of atonement, 
the day where the sins of the people were atoned for, that Aaron, the very first high priest, would place his hand on the head of a goat and confess all the sins of the people over that goat, symbolizing that their sins have been transferred to the goat. Then the goat would then be sent out of the camp into the wilderness, symbolizing that the sins of the people had departed from them. They'd been taken away by the scapegoat. I know that sounds pretty strange, but that was all meant to foreshadow what Jesus would do for us. He would be our scapegoat. Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Just like that goat bore the sins of the people, Jesus bore our sins. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Just like that goat was led out of the camp into the wilderness to die, so Jesus was led outside the city to Golgotha and there was crucified on the cross. Caiaphas says, Jesus needs to die so Israel can survive. But God says, no, Jesus needs to die for so much more. He doesn't die just for the Jewish nation. He dies for something much more eternal. The ironic thing is that Jesus' death does buy a little bit more time for the Jewish leaders, but only about 40 years. In 70 AD, the Romans would completely demolish Jerusalem. And still today, there's no temple there. There's A wailing wall, but no temple, just a reminder of what used to be. That's because God was doing something so much bigger. He wasn't just saving the Jews' political nation. He was redeeming a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He was gathering in his sheep from many different sheepfolds. What these Jews meant for evil, God meant for good. And that is true because he's sovereign. They're plotting and scheming to take down Jesus, but what they are really doing is fulfilling God's mission to save the world. That's the sovereign authority of God that even in the darkest of evil, his will is still accomplished even by those who think they're working directly against it. But yet the Jews persist in their plotting and in their scheming. It's time for the Passover once again. This is a third in the Gospel of John. So we know we're in the third year of Jesus's ministry. They're expecting Jesus to show up in Jerusalem at some point, and they've given orders that if anyone sees him, they need to tell them in order for them to arrest him. But before Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he has one more stop in Bethany. Let's pick back up in John 12, verse 1. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you'll always have with you, but you do not always have me. So picture this scene here. Jesus has returned to Bethany and someone has put on a dinner in his honor. 
This is no surprise because last time he was here, he raised a man from the dead. Jesus is probably pretty popular in this town. And the former dead man, Lazarus, is there too and his two sisters. Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. Mary is serving. But what catches everyone off guard is what Mary does. She takes what is basically 11 or 12 ounces of an incredibly expensive perfume or ointment and uses it to anoint and clean Jesus' feet. It's mentioned in verse 5 that this would have been worth 300 denarii. That's the equivalent of a year's worth of wages for an average worker. So this family is either very wealthy or this was a family heirloom. Either way, this is extremely valuable. This is an an act of extravagant love and humility. It's first an an act of extravagant love by pouring out this costly ointment, not just on Jesus, but on his feet. The feet were the dirtiest part of the whole body in those times from, from walking everywhere on dirt roads with sandals. A, a person wouldn't waste this on someone's feet. But Mary's essentially saying Jesus is worth it all, even his feet. And then it's extreme humility because she uses her own hair to wipe it up. She loves Jesus, but at the same time holds him in true awe and reverence that she would bring herself that low to use her own hair to clean his feet. This action would no doubt have caught everyone off guard. But John chooses to record one particular reaction, that coming from Judas Iscariot. John also gives a spoiler alert that tells us that this is the same Judas who would soon betray Jesus. Judas protests this action because it should have been sold and the money used for the poor. On one hand, this shows that Judas doesn't really understand the value of Jesus. He doesn't understand that Jesus is worth an infinite amount of ointment. But we're also told that he said this because he was secretly helping himself to the money because he was in charge of the money for the disciples. But Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Just like the words of Caiaphas had two levels of meaning, so does this act of Mary. This is the second marker pointing to the cross. Mary is pouring out this ointment as an act of love and devotion and worship to Jesus. But we also find that this is an act foreshadowing what was soon come, Jesus' death and burial. They will bury Jesus and, as was customary during that time, cover the body with perfumes and ointments to cover up the smell of death. Again, God's mission will not be hindered or thwarted in any way. He's orchestrating all these pieces as Jesus moves closer to the cross day by day. And before we move on, it's worth asking, do you view Jesus the same way that Mary does? He is worth everything. Or do you view him more like Judas? Jesus is great, but I don't know if he's worth giving up everything for, like a year's wage. I think it's obvious which one we want to aim for. The biggest difference in Mary and Judas is in their actions. Their actions show what their heart truly believes. Judas eventually betrays Jesus for a bag of silver. That action reveals his true heart of wickedness and greed. But Mary's act reveals a heart of complete devotion and love for Jesus. Her act represents love and awe and reverence and and understanding that Jesus is worth everything and more. There's nothing in this world that can compare with him. And it's easy to say that and think that intellectually, but it's another thing for us 
to let that belief take hold of you and turn it into action. That's what sets Mary apart. She showed her love for God in a tangible way. And that's a challenge for every single believer to show our faith in a tangible way. It's easy to come to church and sing songs about how awesome Jesus is. It's easy to hang scripture art in our house or slap a a fish bumper sticker on our car. But does your life reflect someone who truly believes Jesus is worth giving everything you have? Are you abandoning your life for his name and his glory? Is Jesus worth all your finances? Is Jesus worth all your time? Is Jesus worth all your possessions and comfort? Is he worth your reputation and your hopes and your dreams? If your answer is yes to those questions, then then you have to ask yourself, is your life showing this in a tangible way? We need to live it out like Mary did. As we continue in chapter 12, we find out that the Jews were also wanting to kill Lazarus now because his resurrection is causing more people to believe in Jesus. Putting him back in the grave would certainly help stop that. But then when we skip down to verse 12, we find the third marker pointing to the cross. Here's what it says in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard what he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So all of a sudden, we're in the last week of Jesus' ministry. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem is the beginning of what is now known as Passion Week. This is one of the few events recorded in all four Gospels, which points to how how, how pivotal this moment is. There's no turning back now that Jesus has returned to Jerusalem. This is a marker pointing to the cross because it directly fulfills a prophecy made hundreds of years earlier in Zechariah 9.9. There it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. The disciples didn't realize at the time, but Jesus was fulfilling that prophecy. He's entering Jerusalem, being welcomed like a king by crowds of thousands. But these people have no idea what kind of king they are welcoming. They're envisioning someone who will overthrow Rome and restore Israel to its former glory. But that kind of ruler should have come thundering in on a war horse or in a chariot. Instead, we have the king of kings, the Lord of lords, coming in humbly on a donkey. This will altogether be a different kind of king because he is securing a victory that's much bigger than political freedom. He's securing victory over sin and death for those who believe in his name. And this is called the triumphal entry because 
In a week's time, Jesus Christ will be risen in his glorified body, having defeated death, hell, and the grave. God's plan for redemption will be accomplished, and these mile markers are evidence of his sovereign control and authority. Not only is everything under his control, but it's also under his authority, so much so that even in the wickedness of Caiaphas and the Jews and in Judas, God's will is still accomplished. And that's still true today. His will is still being accomplished even in the midst of a global pandemic, even in the midst of social unrest and protest. We can't always see it. And we certainly don't always understand what God is doing. But one thing we do know with 100% certainty that Jesus Christ is risen and that all those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior will be saved and will be given the right to be called a child of God. His plan of redemption is still marching forward and with that, the summons to repent and believe in the name of Jesus. The call is still for people today to turn from their sins and believe. And I pray right now that there are those listening to this who are, are being moved by the Holy Spirit to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins for the first time. And by taking that step, you make Jesus the Lord of your life. And then like Mary did, Give everything you have for the Savior who's worth giving our entire lives for. Amen.